The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Dr. David Pallison spent his life as a counselor trying to help people understand themselves better. And over the lifetime of his ministry, he's written many articles. Perhaps his most helpful is Idols and the Heart and Vanity Fair. And that's on our website under resources. But in it, he gives a composite picture based on true stories of people he's been with. I'll call that Everyman Jack. Here's the story based on real life. Jack is a 33-year-old man. He's been married to Susan for eight years. They have two children. He works for his church part-time as an administrator over building and half-time in a diaconal ministry of mercy among the inner city poor. But he and his wife sought counseling after a recent explosion in their often simmering marriage. He became enraged and he actually beat her up. And then he ran away, threatening to never come back. He reappeared three days later, full of guilt, remorse, and a global sense of failure. And the current marital problems they have are actually exasperated versions of long-standing problems simmering under the surface. Anger and inability to deeply reconcile, threats of violence alternating with threats of suicide, depression alternating with workaholism, alternating with escapism. A pattern of moderate drinking when under stress, generally poor communication, loneliness, Jack really has no friends. Several years ago, in fact, he was unfaithful to his wife with a woman he was intending to serve diaconally. He broke it off. His wife, Susan, forgave him, but both acknowledged there's been a residue of guilt and mistrust. Jack oscillates between flamethrower and deep freeze. On the one hand, he's abrasive and manipulative and angry and unforgiving. But on the other hand, he withdraws, feels hurt, anxious, guilty, and afraid of people. In his life growing up, his parents pursued affluence and accomplishment, and they achieved many of those things. But as he became an adult, as a young man in college, he became a Christian. Immediately, he was drawn towards the inner city poor and had no sympathy for those who had accomplished much in this life. But in his own life, he feels trapped, confused, guilty, repentant. But then the pattern recycles. What hope is there for Jack? As Dr. Pollison points out, in our overly psychologized age, we're used to trying to fit people like Jack into a specific type. He might be labeled a type A person or a pleaser or a controller or a combination of melancholic or choleric temperaments. Whether or not he's labeled what letter in the disc or the MBTI or the DSM-3 categories, those explanations can never quite pigeonhole him. And the reason why is because in the Bible, the Bible does not give descriptions of people according to types. But instead, the Bible gives descriptions of people as a unit. Think of phrases we have in the Bible like, all we, like sheep, have gone astray, or all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, or there is none righteous, no, not one, or Christ speaking to the rich young ruler, there is none good but God. In today's passage, Jesus will make a statement that lumps humanity together, collectively. But we as humans, if we're honest, even as I shared Jack's true story and Susan's, perhaps you thought, you had some similarities. 
what tangled webs we weave as humans, how deceitful and desperately wicked our hearts are, who can know them? The same human can wish to be in control and yet can also hate too much responsibility. The same human can crave approval and yet also be blinded by pride and wish to disregard counsel from the very people they crave. The same human can feel tired and want time alone and at the same time feel lonely and want to be ministered to. The same human can have a gnawing sense of inferiority and take on a chameleon-like behavior with everyone they're around and yet also have smug condescension to those they consider inferior. See, as humans, we are part villains, choosing bullheadedly in a clearer moment what we would otherwise be ashamed of, but we are also in part victims. We are sinned against. We are acted upon by society, by culture, by many things beyond our control. We don't choose what century or millennia we're born in. We don't choose what continent we're born on. We don't choose the body we're born with. We don't choose the people whose care we're born under. And in today's passage, we're going to see Jesus give a compassionate diagnosis that will provide help for the helpless and harassed, the title of this morning's sermon. If you're following along this morning, there are really three big strokes in the sermon. First, Jesus will give a tender diagnosis for our condition. Second, Jesus will give hope, a solution provided. And third, he will tell us what our life's purpose is. So this morning, if you have the notes in the middle of the bulletin, you'll see we begin with Jesus busy proclaiming the gospel. And underneath this, we'll see the diagnosis. So in your Bible, please look at Matthew 9 verse 35, whether you're in the scriptures or in the handout. I know you're familiar with this verse at this point. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And you now know that that is also the way chapter four ends because chapter four through nine are a bookended inclusio. They're one unit of material. And in that material, Jesus teaches and then he shows the gospel. He teaches it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He tells the gospel. But in chapter 8 and 9, he shows the gospel as he heals and shows power over all things. Last week, we saw Jesus' power over winds and waves. Right now, I'm wishing that was today's text. (laughs) But in these passages, Jesus shows and tells his power over sin and all its attendant consequences. He reminds us that he is the king. So at the end of all of this ministry... Look now in verse 36. Jesus saw the crowds. Please don't jump over that phrase too quickly because after all of this ministry and after all of this tiredness and after all of this rejection, Jesus stops and looks and sees people. Praise God that Jesus is not a task-driven robot, but that he pauses gospel ministry to behold with compassion people people that he never sees past, but people that he sees truly. That is why the verse continues, verse 36, saying when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. It means to feel deep sympathy. Lest you think that phrase is unimportant, imagine if that phrase was not in the passage. Imagine if the passage said, Jesus saw the crowds and then he diagnosed them and here's their diagnosis, but it never said that he felt anything for them. Growing up, we used to tease about the therapeutic culture that we're in. And, and as goofy college students, 
we would do something and then look at our friend and say, oh, how does that make you feel? We were being sardonic and stupid. But it does, in fact, matter how you feel. If this passage didn't contain how Jesus felt, it only showed his diagnosis of us that was clinical and uncaring, it wouldn't move us very much. Is it not interesting that our favorite verses are verses like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Or Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated or commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can hear the part that we're sinners if we feel the part that God loves us. See, the diagnosis, if it's not given from care, is not received. But let me make sure that we understand that it matters for you, if you will be conformed to the image of Christ, how you feel. Now it's true. And sometimes we say this, that, hey, it it doesn't matter how you feel. You need to just know what's right. And you need to just think what's right. And you need to have your mind tell your heart that the fickle feelings that you have don't define you. You need to put mind over matter. And that's true in part. But if you never feel the right feelings, then you haven't gone far enough. On the other hand, we know that our emotions sometimes need to be heard because we can rationalize things that aren't right intellectually, but sometimes we feel in our gut, this is not good. Indeed, humans are so complex that it's not just what we think and what we feel, it is also what we do that that shapes us. There are habits that are worth consistently doing that at the given moment, you could make a case against them intellectually or you don't feel like doing them. Think of waking up and going to work or waking up and exercising. You could make a strong intellectual argument at that moment to not do that. But that habit helps create something good. See, Jesus in the passage we've been in, in chapter eight and nine, he is doing ministry. He is thinking correctly about those to whom he's ministering and he feels rightly towards those he's ministering. We as humans have rare moments where all three gloriously work in harmony. And that's why Jesus' diagnosis here does not surprise us. So look at how verse 36 continues. Jesus saw the crowds. He felt compassion on them. But notice now how he sees those who are apart because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The word harass means to be afflicted. And the word helpless means to be without power. What I find striking about both of these descriptions, they're both participles, but they're both in the passive voice, meaning that something else is acting on these people. And they are also in the perfect tense, meaning that this is described in their own life. Here's what that means in common verbiage. It means that there's a sense in which though we are complicit in our decisions, though we are responsible moral agents, there's also a sense in which We can't always live the way we know we should live. Something about us is broken. We're under sin's curse and it works on us so that we don't always do what we know we should do. In one sense, we are victims enslaved by our own idolatry. Can I tell you that this passage has been one that God has used in my life many times because sometimes as a pastor, I'm meeting with someone and it seems like we have progress and there's growth and there's change and then the wheels fall off the wagon and there's a part of me that wants to sinfully say, but you know better. But passages like this remind me, but also we are in one sense helpless and harassed. In my own life, if I'm honest, there are moments where there's strides of growth and there are moments where how, how did that relapse happen? 
And I'm reminded that, praise God, Jesus knows that I'm frail and helpless and harassed. Ultimately, our problem is the last phrase. Jesus sees us not just as helpless, as harassed, but as sheep without a shepherd. Yes, we have personal responsibility. We are moral agents. We choose to sin, but also we are under sin's curse. There's a sense in which we sometimes don't behave even the way we thought we would. We're a mystery to ourselves, but ultimately our problem is vertical. We need the right thing to be leading us and guiding us. We need something driving us and capturing us. We need the right shepherd. This passage, Jesus has compassion on us because he knows ultimately our problem is a shepherd problem. So in verse 37, he graciously says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Is it not shocking and sad that the need is greater than the number of willing workers? And so has it always been. Therefore, verse 38, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus has given us a diagnosis. The diagnosis is that apart from him, we're helpless and harassed. We're sheep without a shepherd. But now he's used two phrases that have Old Testament weight that I need to make sure we're grasping. The first one is Lord of the harvest. This is used by the prophets like the prophet Isaiah to describe the Messiah who would come. In Isaiah 27, verse 12, we read, In that future day, the Lord Yahweh will glean from the harvest one by one. This is a prophecy fulfilled by God's Messiah, by the Christ. Now, the other phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is from Ezekiel 34. That wonderful chapter talks about how God's Old Testament people, Israel, was not being rightly treated by its priests, by its shepherds. They were taking advantage of them. And then God said this in Ezekiel 34, verse 11, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep. I myself will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among them that have been scattered, so I will seek my sheep and bring them from all places they have been scattered. See, this is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promise. God himself would come to seek his lost sheep. At this point, sometimes someone will ask, well, does that mean only the sheep of Israel? But think about the gospel of Matthew. Matthew begins in chapter one with this amazing promise. Here has come the Messiah, the person who's come to save his people, the Jews. But do you remember how Matthew ends in chapter eight, verses 19 through 20? Go to all the world and make disciples of all nations. Any reader who sat down and read Matthew in one sitting would ask, what happened? How did the one who came to save his people ended up commissioning his people to the ends of the globe? What happened? The short answer is given by the gospel of John. He came unto his own and his own received him not. Did we not see that already happening in chapter eight and nine? Remember, it's the centurion of whom Jesus says, such faith has not been seen in all of Israel. This is actually ultimately good news for us. Jesus in fulfillment of Ezekiel 34 will seek his lost sheep scattered from all the earth. And that's good news for us because this shepherd cares for all of us. 
All of us who are harassed and helpless, all of us who are sheep without a shepherd, what Jack needs, what Susan needs, what every crowd of people on college campuses, shopping malls, sport fields, office buildings, and in traffic jam needs is the same thing. The good shepherd, the Lord of the harvest, and he has come. See, the truth that we need to hear is that though we are mysteries to ourselves, though that we are helpless and harassed, we all actually fundamentally have the same problem and we all fundamentally need the same solution. We all need the good shepherd. But the good shepherd has come not just to live for the sheep, but to take the place of the sheep. The Lord of the harvest has come to rescue us from the blinding idolatry of sin. And let me tell you that sin is blinding. And that is why Jesus began in Matthew 4 verse 17 with this word, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, so turn. So let me share with you a wonderful truth this morning. When you feel helpless and harassed, do not give in to self-pity or fleeting regret. Rejoice in this reality. God does not accept you as you are. That would mean God endorses sin. No, it's much better. God will accept you as Christ is. When we turn to the Lord of the harvest, when we receive the good shepherd, his perfection is placed on our account through faith. God is not accepting us as sinners. He's receiving us as his son. A much better truth. By that truth, Christ's love not only comforts us, it changes us. Perhaps you were offended when Jesus describes people apart from him as helpless and harassed, but rather be offended by it, stop and bask in the amazing grace of that statement. Think of the word helpless. He who is omnipotent in power, the very creator of the universe in which we live, Jesus, was willingly made helpless, led by crucifiers to a rugged cross. Think of the word harassed. It means to be afflicted. He who had zero guilt or sin, Jesus, was crushed beyond comprehension, enduring condemnation that he did not deserve. Think of the last phrase, like sheep. Jesus, the lion, was led like a lamb to the slaughter and opened not his mouth. If these descriptions rub you the wrong way, helpless, harassed, like sheep without a shepherd, do you not understand that they're descriptions that our Lord Jesus experienced on his own body so that he could exchange his power to us received in faith? You see, the good shepherd has taken the place of the helpless and harassed sheep. And he did not just die on the cross to take away what stood against us. He has risen victoriously so we can share in that resurrected power. So this morning with Jesus, I encourage you, if you haven't, repent. Turn from your idolatry and trust in Jesus Christ. Turn from wandering and follow the good shepherd. Call on the Lord of the harvest and he will rescue you. But the passage then speaks to those of us who have been rescued. And it's an amazing promise. God rescues the helpless and harassed. So then we can be empowered by the Lord of the harvest to help others who are still helpless. What an amazing thought. So look now again in verse 37 and 38. Jesus is 
now no longer looking at the crowds, but looking at those who are his followers. So look in verse 37. And this is you, if you're a disciple of Jesus today. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. One of my great fears, having heard this verse preached at missionary conferences over the years growing up, is that many Christians wrongly think that this is a prayer that you pray for someone else to go somewhere else. Which means that what we needed to keep doing in the Gospel of Matthew is simply keep reading. Because in Matthew 10, Jesus will then commission those exact disciples to go out into the harvest immediately. And as chapter 10 continues, he will say that all disciples will be used by him to go into the harvest immediately. So please let me give you four applications for us this morning. Here's the first one. Let us pray that we will labor in the harvest. Emmanuel, let us not pray, Lord, send someone else somewhere else. Lord, let us instead pray, Lord, here am I. Send me now where I am. Use me where you've put me. When I came to Christ as a young person, in my younger years of high school, there were a few older men in our church who mentored me and took me under their wing. And every Saturday and then every Sunday, they would take me out and we would walk door to door and we would just tell people about Jesus Christ. And as a young high schooler, if I worked on Saturday, I would do it on Sunday. If I was available Saturday, I'd go on on. On Saturday, and we would go every week. The Lord must have a humor sense because I grew up as a door-to-door uh, paper boy, and then I became a mailman, and I did that in high school. I've been chased by dogs my whole life at doors. <laughs> Those years of going door-to-door and, and being 14 years old and feeling scared and telling someone who's much bigger and older than me how they could know Jesus were so good to help me trust in that Lord of the harvest. When I went to college, there was a ministry that some friends invited me to be a part of. We went downtown to State Street at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And on Friday night, we would just strike up conversation with anyone around and tell them about the Lord. On those Friday nights, I talked to active professors who were teaching at UW. And I talked to people who were homeless, often on the same night. As we would walk around the streets and just turn conversations to the Lord. Again, it was so good to open my eyes to the harvest and to show me people who were around me. But can I confess something so sad that has happened many seasons in my life? That boldness, that death to selfishness, that loss of self-interest, the consideration of the harvest waxes and wanes in my own life, if I'm honest. And I'll have seasons where I'm thinking about church and I'm thinking about administration and I'm thinking about the organizational things we need to do. And I'll prepare for sermons, which is a right and good thing. But then I'll forget the harvest around me and the need to ask God to send me in. At the end of 2019, my wife, who is by far my better half, sat with me and said, Josh, we must pray on a regular basis that God will use us to lead someone to Christ this next year. So we went into 2020 on a regular, almost everyday basis, praying together, Lord, help us to bring someone to Christ this year. And before January had ended, we had done so twice. But the Lord was reminding me how I can forget the discipline of praying, Lord, send me in the harvest. Now, it's not just me who forgets. It's churches taken collectively who forget. 
Steph and I have had the joy of helping with a church planning team, and we've had the joy of leading church revitalization. Can I tell you how they're different? When you're church planning, all you think about is the harvest. That's all you think about. Because you pull up in a trailer, you unpack chairs, you unpack your system, you meet in an elementary school usually, and all you're thinking about is people around you and how they can come to know the Lord. But when you become a church that's over about 10 years, most missiologists say 20 years, 30, 40, 50, you start to think about what you have and how to maintain it, how to take care of it. It's a little bit like this. I was in Charlotte a couple of weeks ago, so I guess I have NASCAR on the mind. It's a little like the difference between a race car and an antique car. A race car is something you know exists to drive. So you take it out and it gets muddy and it gets dirty and you take off the wheels and you just keep using it. But an antique car, you put the cover over it, you wax it, you only bring it out every once in a while. Your main thought is how to maintain what you already have. See, the same struggle in my own life is a struggle for churches collectively where we must ask God to constantly open our eyes to the harvest around us. Now, we've been going through Esther on Wednesday nights, and something Mordecai said in Esther really struck me in regards to our church and all churches. Mordecai told Esther, hey, God will deliver his people. God will keep his promise, and he doesn't have to use you to keep his promise, but if you're willing, he can use you. Now, Jesus in the gospel of Matthew has made two promises about the harvest. First, he says in Matthew 18, verse 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Then in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, he says, go make disciples and I will be with you. Now, God will keep his promise. But the question is whether or not we will be the ones he uses to fulfill it. If it's not us, he can raise up other people in another place, but he will keep his promise. And he will bring people in this neighborhood and in Raleigh and in Five Points and in the world beyond to his son. Now, let me tell you why I believe God is already at work in our church and why I believe God can use our church to fulfill his promise. Because right now, I stand on an elevated stage that I did not build. But a man in our church who has a desire to see the harvest reach spent the time to build. Right now, I'm surrounded by flowers that I have not watered or sown. Honestly, I'm not sure. I think they're real. So someone is watering them and keeping an eye on them and caring for those things. Right now, I see chairs that you've brought that people have set up. In fact, some of you I've met that have come for the first time this month and you've walked by signs that our people have taken time to set up in the morning and taken time to help you come to know Christ. You see, I believe that God has prepared and is working in our church to meet the promise of this passage to go into the harvest with trust that he will give fruit. So let us continue to pray that we will labor in the harvest. Secondly, let us pray that we will see people with compassion. Let's pray that we will be meaningfully engaged in regular mercy ministry, that we like Christ will not see people and think that they're awful, but we will see people and think that they're enslaved. People who are helpless and harassed, no matter what they look like on the surface, all need the good shepherd. This means that as a church, we want to both tell the gospel like Jesus did, but we also want to show the gospel like Jesus did. As I've worded it here, we want to declare Jesus, but we also want to display Jesus. 
So let us be eagerly involved in mercy ministries, helping people all over the community in any ways that we can individually or collectively. Third, let's labor and persevere through setbacks. Didn't you notice at the end of chapter nine, how he says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The word laborer, does it not imply that it will be work? Does the word harvest, does it not imply that it will take time? Thus, the expectation is that laboring in the harvest will be arduous and often will require patience before there's fruit. So persist. Think of that person to whom you've shared the gospel year after year, perhaps decade after decade, and you're at the moment now where you're not sure if this can happen anymore. Don't quit praying. Don't quit sharing. Trust the Lord to ripen the fruit at his time. It's labor. It's a harvest. And as chapter 10 makes clear, it includes opposition. But brothers and sisters, let us not talk about how hard the ground is or how difficult the era is or how much the world has changed. Let us instead talk about the unchanging power of the gospel and the greatness of the Lord of the harvest to reap what he has sown and watered and he will give the increase. Let us not grow weary and let us not faint as we labor in the harvest. Fourth, let us pray and invest in more laborers for this plentiful harvest. Now, earlier I said, this is not a prayer initially to pray for someone else to go somewhere else, but it is ultimately a prayer for others to join and to be put wherever God wants them in the harvest. I want to tell you some things I'm burdened about on a personal level. I love mission trips. And I'm so desperately praying that next year we will go on an overseas mission trip. I've tried to put some feelers out with the IMB about going to China next year. And I know that it's a scary time to go anywhere. And I know there are a lot of complexities to it, but can I share what God has pressed on my own heart? Honestly, I would rather get sick laboring in the harvest than to be healthy while those in the harvest perish and the laborers are few. So let us go in faith that God has those in the harvest that he will reap when we trust him with our health and our lives. I pray also that we will see many churches planted out of our church as we partner with other church planting groups and that we will see people come to know the Lord. Can I tell you something I didn't expect and didn't write in the sermon just happened this morning? This morning, as I came out here early and the guys were setting up, I saw someone who I haven't seen in over 10 years. I saw Matt, who's sitting near my family. In 2010, Matt and his parents were sent out by our church in Michigan to Peru. I haven't seen Matt in so long. The last time I saw him, he was in middle school. It took me a minute to recognize him this morning. But as we sat together and started to talk, he was sharing by God's grace, their family has just finished planting their fourth church in Peru. What I pray for, for Emmanuel Baptist Church and what I pray for our church is that there will be a day that when we go to see our missionaries, they will be former members from our congregation. That the missionary trips we take will often be to visit people who were sent out from among us. That we will be a place eager for the harvest. So may the Lord use us to reach to six to 7,000 people, nations, and languages that are still unreached people groups that have never had the Bible in their own language. May the Lord use us here 
and there. May the Lord send us wherever he would. May we have sustained faith in the good shepherd who is the Lord of the harvest. I have three good friends who are missionaries in Turkey that went through seminary with me. And I was reading this week from David Platt that Turkey has 80 million people and less than 6,000 believers. Let us pray that the Lord will send us where we are and where the harvest has need. And let us go with confidence that the same compassion that Christ has on the helpless and harassed that was given to us will now be used through us to be given to others. Let's close in prayer this morning. Dear God, I thank you that though sometimes we feel a mystery to our own selves, that there is a great physician who can give us an accurate diagnosis of what we are. We are indeed sinners and we sin by choice and we're responsible for what we do. But Lord, we also are complex beings who sometimes can't seem to put our finger on what's wrong with us. We are in one sense helpless and harassed. But Lord, I thank you that the good physician's tender diagnosis comes with a cure. And the cure is always Christ. No matter where you're at spiritually, no matter how long you've been a Christian, the cure never changes. It is turning to Christ and trusting in him afresh. The moment someone first does that, They are eternally forgiven. They are eternally secured. And so we thank you, Lord, that even on day our sins, though they be many, your mercy is more. But Lord, I pray that even as sheep who belong to the shepherd, when we are prone to wander, bring us back to the good shepherd and bishop of our souls who bore our helplessness, and was afflicted in our place, and was a lamb led to the slaughter, so that he could take our sin and give us his righteousness forever. But Lord, now I do pray that we would be laborers in the harvest. I pray that for each one of us. Give us renewed vigor for the harvest that is all around us, Lord, and give us confidence that we will reap if we do not grow weary and we do not faint that you will bring people to the good shepherd and that you will do so here and that you will do so around the world. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to see from this church many people sent locally and globally to make a difference in the harvest. But Lord, I pray that in all these things, our goal would not be counting our accomplishments, but rejoicing in our shepherd who is the one who deserves all praise, who is the feet at which every crown will fall, who is the center of the throne around which every tribe and tongue will gather. So to him be all glory and all praise this day and that day. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.